The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you as well, Scott. Hi, everybody. We have a sell-off across Wall Street today as investors digest bad economic data, weak earnings, and sinking oil prices. Wish I had better news to share, but look at the Dow. It's down 524 points right now. That's a better than 2% drop. The Nasdaq remains relatively solid at a 1.5% decline. Now, when we say bad economic data, we mean really bad. The Empire uh, State Manufacturing Index for April plummeted to a minus 78.2 reading. That's a clear record low. New orders and shipments both declined at a record pace. Retail wasn't pretty either. The retail sales report this morning dropped nearly 9% in just one month, the largest drop on record. Terrible clothing and car sales just weren't overcome by a surge in grocery shopping and in spending online. And also, homebuilder confidence saw its biggest monthly dive ever. Confidence plunged 42 points to a reading of 30. We're going to dig into that, uh, the move in the home builders, which are down nearly 6% today in just a little bit. For more on the data right now on those earnings, which I mentioned, and on that plunge in oil, let's bring in Mr. Bob Bassani. Good morning or good afternoon, Bob. Good afternoon. And so remember the first part of this whole thing. We had the panic phase. We dropped 34%. That was the March 23rd low. And then we had the recovery phase where all of a sudden we're up 27% off of the lows. And now we're in what I call the reality sets in phase. So you saw that lousy economic data on retail. You saw the bank loan losses with very high reserves. Oil's at an 18-year low. Folks, uh, there's a lot of bad news out there. And I think people are starting to recognize that. There you see the Dow. We're just off of the lows for the S&P 500, down 44 points. Uh, the sectors that are down today are exactly the sectors that drop when people realize that things are going to be worse. This is virtually identical. Energy, bank stocks, small cap Russell 2000, and industrials. Those are the sectors that have been the worst performers in the last six weeks. They're the worst performers today. Relatively outperforming are consumer stocks and healthcare. That's the same thing. Those two have done better than the other sectors in the last six or seven weeks here. The eat at home trends, though, I always like it when people note the big sales increases. Uh, Piper just upgraded General Mills and Campbell Soup. Look at these increases in retail sales growth in the last few weeks. That's no surprise. The eat at home thing is really working out. General Mills, by the way, you know, these stocks, they're near 52 week highs. General Mills just off of that. There you see it right there. Finally, just want to note new highs today. It's all the stay at home crowd. You've got Netflix at a new high. You've got Amazon. You've got Walmart and Lilly in the pharmaceutical group. That's obviously doing well. Guys, back to you. Okay, Bob, we appreciate it. Thank you, Bob Bassani. Well, the president says some states could reopen for business by May 1st. The White House is working on a set of national guidelines on that effort and holding phone calls today with leaders across industries to get their input. All this as Germany's Angela Merkel has just announced that nation will begin reopening on April 20th. That's in just five days. Let's get to Kayla Tausche, who's in Washington with the very latest. Kayla? 
Hi, Kelly. President Trump says 29 states have low enough infection rates to begin some form of economic reentry in the coming weeks. Now, those efforts will be led by states' governors with input from Washington. To that end, there are several groups in a hierarchy of decision-making here in Washington. First, you have the Coronavirus Task Force, which includes medical officials, and they hold the keys for these guidelines and recommendations. Then you have cabinet-level officials that are convening to discuss economic implications, and they're getting input from a group of some 200 executives that are meeting on an ad hoc basis to provide industry-specific advice. These include CEOs from blue-chip companies like Apple, Goldman Sachs, McDonald's. You have labor leaders and even members of previous administrations as well. Meanwhile, conservative groups are leading an effort outside the White House to open the economy even sooner. Stephen Moore, a former Trump advisor and close friend of many in the White House, is leading that effort, and he tells me, I have a big problem with the virus determining when our $20 trillion economy gets up and running. He says it needs to get up and running a week ago and that longer closure of the government and of business means that more federal funds will be needed to fix that problem. He says that is killing an ant with an atom bomb. Of course, Kelly, what you cannot predict is how quickly consumer behaviors will change. How quickly will you and I want to go back to life as we know it? There was a Harvard study out in recent days that said some form of social distancing will be needed until 2022 to keep future outbreaks at bay. Well, you know, it's interesting, Kayla, because one of the main focuses for Germany, for other places, even for the U.S., is whether to reopen schools. Uh, but I don't understand how we could even do that if you can't have childcare. Right. And that is one of the biggest and most critical unsolved variables, Kelly. I mean, in certain states and certain companies, they are wanting a fraction of employees to start getting back to work. But in 23 states, the school systems are closed until the end of the academic year. In many cases, that academic year spanned until late June. Just today, two Democratic senators put forth a plan for $50 billion in aid for child care to make sure to keep that industry afloat and to make sure that it's accessible for workers on the front line. The question is when those centers and those schools can open for everybody else and what that means for people being able to get back to work. Right. I know a lot of places right now say, you know, we'll take the kids of teachers and healthcare workers, but they'll have to expand that as more uh, industries become vital. Kayla, for now, we appreciate it. Thank you. Kayla Tausche in Washington. Well, as I mentioned, stocks are down today and they're sitting near session lows right now with the market selling off after a swath of terrible economic news from retail sales to manufacturing. Our cash in saying it might be time to hit the pause button on this rally. For more, I'm joined by Jason Brady. He's the CEO of Thornburg Investment Management and Jim Karen is global fixed income portfolio manager at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. It's good to see you both. Jason, I'll just begin with you. Uh, have we come back too much too quickly here for the stock market? Well, look, we're, we're all trying to look forward and see what, what's actually happening here in the marketplace. But what, what we're seeing today is a reaction to the cloudiness of the outlook. So we're seeing some bank earnings, and it's really challenging for those businesses to look forward into the second quarter. The economic data is the same way. The bad data was April data. Even the retail sales number was a March number that was only affected a little bit by the end of the month. So it's really trying to resolve the cloudiness of the outlook. I know you, we've talked about this before, but you like, like you say, the survivors in some of these hard-hit sectors like energy and financials. We'll come back to that. But, Jim, I want to bring you in with this idea that as bad as the data get, it might call for more action from Congress and even from the Fed. We haven't even begun really to see the Main Street program in action yet. Uh, how would you score them on these measures? 
Well, so far it's taking a little bit longer than what the market's probably hoping and, and expecting. But ultimately, I do think it works. I mean, the Fed is throwing in, also the Treasury is throwing an awful lot of money at this. And I do think that over time, this is going to you know be successful, but it's going to take time. And one of the things that Kayla was discussing just before is how long is it going to take for people to come back and you know go to a crowded theater, go to a ball game or something like that. This is really the issue that we have to focus on here is that we don't exactly know the time. But, you know, what I would argue, though, is that, yes, these programs are of sufficient size. It's just that failure is not an option. The, the government, the Fed is going to keep at this and the sizes will get bigger if it needs to be. Right. Because our Jim, our, uh, our uh, Kate Rogers just tweeted the latest update on the payroll protection program. It was given $350 billion initially. She says it's almost hit the $300 billion mark. And Congress left last week without approving more funds. So what? I mean, the time is of the essence. This thing could run out of funding tomorrow or the next day. Yeah, so, so, so you're using the magic word, right? So funding, right? So funding is a measure of, of, of liquidity being extended to the market, right? And we have to think about this in a framework of liquidity, solvency, and then stimulus. So right now, the Fed and what the, what the government, what the Treasury is trying to do is effectively extend a bridge loan to, to create solvency for these companies right now to get through this difficult period of time where earnings might be a little bit short because people aren't outside spending. You don't want to have a liquidity problem turn into a solvency problem. And effectively, you can be insolvent and, you know, and to the extent that some earnings are not coming in the way that people had hoped that they were, this is going to hurt uh, a company's ability to repay their debts. But as long as you don't lose access to funding, you can be in that period of time for, you know, an extended period of time, I should say. And, and essentially, that's what the government is doing, is they're providing a bridge loan to these companies to get to the other side of the, of the virus so that when they do get there, there's still an ongoing concern and that there is a recovery and that these companies can actually still recover. Right. And uh, so, Jason, I saw you, know, you nodding in agreement with that. Bring it back to how you think investors should be positioned right now. Look, I think the liquidity solvency dynamic is critical. Um, I would say that what the Fed's trying to do is solve liquidity issues, but the problem is longer-term changes in behavior, et cetera, are solvency challenges, and the Fed shouldn't and can't really solve those. So as you look at beaten-up sectors, financials, energy as an example, the survivors are the ones that are suffering potentially liquidity, but not long-term solvency. So we like Royal Dutch as an example. Royal Dutch Shell has a great balance sheet, access to funding actually today, and actually, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia just put a whole lot of money into their equity. I don't know a better, uh, better positioned investor from a knowledge standpoint, yeah. also one that needs those dividends. So you, as you think about that solvency issue going forward, that's very much in, in our focus at Thornburg. But I like what you just said, and it's a good point. There's, it's one thing to provide a bridge loan, and it's another uh, to keep up a movie theater or a restaurant business that might literally not be a going concern anymore because it's only going to be at, at less than 50 percent capacity, for example. So, Jason, I'm not sure there are a lot of, of great examples of publicly traded companies. There's a few in that space. But, I mean, how, how big a part of the economy do you think we're talking about that could be permanently affected in that way? And it's a great question as you look at hospitality sectors. Those are a real problem. Um, frankly, I live in a tourist town here in Santa Fe, and restaurants are shuttering. So I expect this challenge to exist for some time and the liquidity issues to be solved in the marketplace, but not in the economy from a solvency standpoint longer term. Uh, so as we look at this, this challenge, it's, it's critical. And for us, 
credit is where this is really playing out. Smaller businesses, private credit, not so much really large public equities. Yeah. I didn't know you were in Santa Fe. You got to get that backdrop. You know, then what's this Thornburg? I don't need to see Thornburg. I want to see the, you know, the Pueblos and the turquoise. We'll, we'll get the mountains. We'll get the mountains for you next time. Thank you. It's good to see you both, guys. Thank you so much. We appreciate it today. Jason Brady and Jim Karen. Well, we mentioned that the price of oil is one of the big parts of the market story today. Crude is hovering just around the $20 a barrel mark after hitting its lowest level since 2002. It's down nearly 70 percent in the past year. It's causing the Texas Railroad Commission, which regulates the oil and gas industry in Texas, to hold a virtual meeting yesterday for public comment as it considers cutting production in the state for the first time in nearly 50 years. So how did we get here? On March 30th, Pioneer and Parsley Energy proposed a 20 percent cut by regulators equal to about a million barrels a day. Then on April 8th, Exxon came out against that, along with every major trade association. At the commission's open meeting yesterday, it heard 10 hours of testimony from over 50 people. Next week, the three-person agency will meet virtually to possibly vote on cuts. For more on all this, I'm joined by Wayne Christian. He's the chair of the Texas Railroad Commission. And Wayne, it's good to see you. Welcome. Honored to be with you. So tell me what your conclusions are to the extent that you can from what you heard yesterday. Well, of course, after 50 plus testimonies that were given, a lot of views, a lot of concerns. And I think the agreement is we've got to do something. We're, we're sitting here and looking at the different options they told us from industry and individuals. But we have a risk in our nation of uh, turning back from the being the energy exporter to the world. Number one in the world exporter, the United States, uh, just behind us are Russia and Saudi Arabia. And of course, OPEC decided they didn't like that and came after us on a one punch. And then this pandemic came through and shut down the use of oil and gas worldwide. So the industry is suffering. And what we yesterday heard from is a desperate industry, many small families that are losing jobs, literally hundreds of thousands that will lose jobs unless we stabilize something or come to some rescue. Yeah, as you said, a desperate industry. I mean, there was some incredible testimony yesterday. Diamondback Energy basically said, you know, if you make us cut, we're just going to cut all the way to zero because we can't be viable in that kind of environment. We're talking about putting jobs at risk and so forth. You know, they're against the idea that you should do something, as you just said. What kind of options are we talking about? Are are you coming? We've we've spoken to your colleague, Ryan Sitton, who did seem to support the Pioneer and Parsley proposal. Are you saying you might support that as well? Or would your action take a different form? Well, any option is there. We're looking at all of the options. There have been no decision made. And until we three get together and make a decision, there is no decision of the agency. But what I'm looking at is what are our options? And even the presentation of limiting the production, we need to do that nationwide. Texas is 40% of the production in the United States. And in the world, we're only 5%. So to really be effective, a lot of the testimony said we need the cooperation of other states. I am a member appointed by Governor Abbott to the Interstate Oil and Gas Compact Commission, which are the 31 states that regulate energy in the United States and in Canada. And uh, we need their cooperation, plus the federal government. So we need to act as an entire nation on this if we're going to act economically against forces worldwide. Right. But the, it does come down to the three of you right now. It's amazing. You guys had over 20,000 people tuned into your virtual meeting yesterday from Texas, from across the country, from around the world, because everyone's pointing the finger at you to say, is American production going to agree uh, to a cut? Now, there are some who say, look, we could kind of unofficially do this by limiting natural gas flaring, uh, for instance. Would you consider something like that as a method of basically trying to trim overall production? 
frankly, I think that's a separate environmental, uh, definitely a, a, good, a good issue that we, we are addressing at the Railroad Commission or looking at waste address flaring. But really, I think that's a side issue. When you cut back production, you're going to cut down the amount of flaring. That's happening as we speak. So right now, that's not the main issue. The main issue is we need the dollar of the uh, barrel of oil back up so that our companies can continue and we don't lay off workers and destroy what has been uh, the revamping of not only energy security in the United States. For the first time in 70 years, we're an energy exporter in the United States to the rest of the world. That's at risk. Uh, we have families, thousands of families that are making a living from this. We have energy security. And more important, for the first time, we are now have national security secure. The, the amount of discoveries in America, in Texas, are phenomenal. Worldwide, our, our ambassadors worldwide have said we have negotiated different because of the discoveries of oil in the United States. Yeah. And under attack from OPEC for this shell play that has made energy number one in the United States. You know, these comments from uh, Texas State Representative Lyle Larson were pretty stark. He said uh, the idea of, of cuts is arrogant and condescending to every Texan. The most un-American thing we've heard in Texas in the last 50 years. Please drop any consideration of socializing Texas oil today. What's your response to that? And again, are you guys basically, you think, on the cusp of allowing, agreeing or imposing ter uh, quotas across Texas oil production? Definitely, it's one option that we're considering. As you said, it was one of the testimonies. But we sat through 10 and a half hours of suggestions. And all of those are on the table. And Lyle is a great friend, a great uh, representative there in Austin. And we certainly listened to his uh, recommendation. And all of it we put together to come up with what's right for Texas and working together with other states for America. All right. Well, it sounds to me like you guys are considering it. We know the big meeting is on Tuesday. Uh, we'll see what comes out of that and if there's any, uh, you know, if that's even enough at this point to support the oil price. Uh, but Wayne Christian, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Uh, Wayne Christian is the chair of the Texas Railroad Commission. We have some breaking news. You're just talking about theaters. Uh, Cinemark has some news on reopening. Julia Borson here with that. Julia? That's right. Cinemark CEO Mark Zarati just outlining his plan to reopen his theaters around July 1st. He said that he aims to bring back their employees starting around mid-June with a plan of starting to show old movies, library movies, around the beginning of July to ramp up and start getting people back into theaters before the opening of Christopher Nolan's Tenant. That's a Warner Brothers movie, which is scheduled to open on July 17th. That would be the first new movie to open in theaters. So he outlined this plan. He said that they can operate profitably at 20% to 30% capacity. They do not need to be more full than that to be profitable. He also said they're discussing different ways to implement social distancing within the theaters uh, and including capping the number of people that could uh, be admitted. Back over to you. Yeah, Julia, those aren't going to be details. That's going to be central to the whole thing, don't you think? I mean, how, how a movie theater being one of the first to talk about reopening? Absolutely. I mean, what's really interesting here is he was pressed on this call about whether people would even want to come back, whether they'd be comfortable coming back. And he said he really did think there would be a, a very wide range of responses to this. He noted that there are different, a number of different ways to do this. They could get rid of reserved seating and allow families to sit together and then have families be separate from other people. They could sell every other seat and block off seats in the middle. 
Uh, and he also talked about how a lot of their theaters have these recliners, these bigger seats that are naturally more separate from others. So a range of op you know possibilities here, but interesting that he wanted to get the theaters open before new movies open. And maybe part of that is to test the appetite of getting people back into into those screening rooms. Yep, everyone's talking about whether direct to your living room is, is going to be the new model. So I, I know their urgency. All right, Julia, thanks. Julia Borson with the Cinemark News there. Coming up, tech takes the lead. Despite today's market downturn, some of the biggest names in tech have been the leaders of this attempt to climb up from the bottom. Can it last and what are the best buys, we'll ask. Plus, we've seen plenty of companies suspend their buybacks, but only a very few have suspended dividends. Is that the next shoe to drop? And a record plunge in homebuilder sentiment sending the stocks deep into the red today. Will housing not play a part in our recovery? We'll discuss. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Historically low rates were supposed to give the housing market a boost and hopefully help with the economic recovery. But as more cities implemented shutdowns, furloughs and layoffs weren't the only thing to climb. Mortgage rates did, too, because of rising delinquencies. Now the idea of housing holding up doesn't appear to be in the cards, and today's sentiment index shows just that. Diana Olick is here with the numbers. Diana? Well, Kelly, yeah, some really stunning numbers on builder sentiment in single-family housing market. It plunged 42 points in April to 30 on the National Association of Home Builders Index. Anything above 50 is considered positive. Now, this was the first negative read in six years and was the largest one-month drop in the history of the survey dating back to 1985. The expectation was for a drop to 55, but the survey was conducted from April 1st to the 13th, so it's really the most current read on the builders that we have today date of the index's three components. Current sales conditions dropped 43 points to 36. Sales expectations in the next six months fell 39 points to 36. And buyer traffic decreased 43 points to 13. Now, construction was deemed an essential business by the federal government during the coronavirus pandemic, although certain hard-hit states have shut down most operations. Now, tomorrow morning, we will get housing starts for the month of March. So that may, again, be another indicator of what the slowdown will be ahead. Obviously not quite as bad as we expect to see going forward since it was still March. But, Kelly, these numbers are not going to improve anytime soon. No, oh, that's for sure. Diana, we appreciate it. Thank you, Diana Olick. Let's check out the Home Builder ETF, the ITB. It's tumbling about 6% of the lows today. Is there more pain to come for the industry? Joining me now is Jack Misenko. He's a Home Builder analyst with Susquehanna Group. Jack, is it one step forward, two steps back, two step forward, one step back? What do you think? Hi, Kelly, and thanks for having me. You know, it, it, it's, hard, it's hard to know right now because your, your model home centers aren't open. Uh, you're having a hard time getting people on the job sites to finish these homes. You've got to distance out your trade so you can't have too many people working in a house to, to, to finish that, that home uh, that you have under contract. Um, you know, the one thing I would say is this is going to be a very front-end loaded impact. You know, when you look at the financial crisis, it took two years really to reach 
uh, peak unemployment and uh, you know decline, you know meaningful declines in home prices took even longer than that. This is going to be very much front front end loaded. So the question really is, when do we come out of this? When does work start again? You know, what does unemployment look like? I mean, think about the builders. They're, they're really a, the companies are really three things. One, they are um, transaction models, right? So you don't open the, the doors on a Saturday. Nobody can buy a house. Mm-hmm. Number two, they're capital-intensive businesses, right? You, 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 you're owning land for several years forward because that's your that's your inventory. And then three, it's a confidence game. You know, people aren't buying homes if they don't have confidence about their own, uh, you know, individual situation. Right. So, all of that said, and I see how your recent note talks about how even the losers get lucky sometimes. You're about positive on about half the industry. Dr. Holton, uh, Horton, Pulte, Taylor Morrison, neutral on the rest. Why those three? Do they have better characteristics about exposure parts of the country? I think the overriding theme in our reset of our view is is really scale. And when you run through exactly what we basically did is we took a two-year trend in housing out of the global financial crisis and applied it to two quarters in our models and said, okay, what's that look like over the next two years then from there? And what you come to realize is two things. Businesses that are focused on the first-time entry-level buyer are likely to do better. Right? Those are life-type events, marriage, child, etc. Those that are focused on the higher-end or trade-up buyer, those are more discretionary purchases, and you could see that demand being negatively impacted all else equal. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then the other piece is scale. You know, So for Pulte and Horton, two of the three largest builders in the country, when you run that you know, that significant drop, that air pocket of demand through the model, they tend to be more resilient because they're more geographically diverse. They have um, much better operating scale. And so the, the earnings impact is far, far less. No, and that makes sense. Scale uh, for any company in this environment important. And like you said, life events instead of just wanting uh, to move yeah. uh, houses. Jack, thanks. We'll leave it there for now. We'll check back in with you soon. Thanks. Jack Misenko of Susquehanna. Uh, talking about the home builders again after a record low confidence uh, plunge this morning. Coming up, as it embarks on a massive, unprecedented and far-reaching new path, is the Fed at risk of losing its independence? And if so, what would that mean? We'll explore that. Plus, how Major League Baseball is playing a role in the largest COVID-19 antibody study in the U.S. We've got those details. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in two minutes. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 
Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get the very latest in the coronavirus pandemic. Over to Seema Modi for the headlines of this hour. Seema. Hello, Kelly. Good afternoon. Let's start with New York. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo is signing an executive order requiring people to wear face coverings in public when social distancing cannot be maintained. He says, but the curve is flattening in the state with another decline in virus-related hospitalizations. The healthcare situation has stabilized. The fears of overwhelming the healthcare system has not happened. So we have that stabilized. People are still getting infected, but we have the infection spread down to a manageable number. Senate Democrats are seeking $30 billion to fund a national virus testing program. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer says the U.S. needs to ramp up testing and contact tracing. The Justice Department's watchdog is launching remote inspections of federal prisons to ensure the facilities are properly handling COVID-19 outbreaks. Prison staff and inmates have complained about unsanitary conditions, a lack of social distancing, and problems getting protective equipment. As always, for more coronavirus coverage, head to CNBC.com. Kelly? Okay, Seema, thanks so much. Seema Modi. Well, testing is underway right now as Major League Baseball has agreed to participate in the country's largest corona antibody study yet. Eric Chemi joins me now with the details. Eric? That's right, Kelly. Major League Baseball says 27 of its 30 teams will voluntarily participate in an antibody research study conducted by Stanford and USC. Each participant will have a finger pricked to produce blood that will be tested for the presence of antibodies, which indicates a past infection even in people who have never displayed symptoms. About 10,000 total employees across the league have volunteered to participate, including players, stadium workers, and executives. Baseball's employee base encompasses a vast range of ages and geographies. That's a key feature for this study. Researchers said there's nothing in it for the league other than to help public health policy. The researchers asked many companies for volunteers, but baseball was the first one to say yes. The goal of the project is to provide a better understanding of how many people in various parts of America have been infected. That could help researchers figure out how many people might have been exposed but suffered no symptoms, and that information could help public officials determine when it's safe to ease up on social distancing rules meant to slow down the pandemic. Kelly, back to you. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. We know this is the next step towards the reopening, but you said MLB was the first to sign on with this, but how did these two groups get involved? So in addition to Stanford and USC, there's an anti-doping lab based out of Utah that's part of this study. There's not a lot of anti-doping testing going on right now because there are no sports, so they are getting involved with this. They already had an existing relationship with MLB, and so they were able to use that relationship, and MLB was very quick to say, yes, we want to participate in this. Wow, that is fascinating. That is a great repurposing of something that wasn't being used. Right. Eric, thanks so much. Eric Chemi. Coming up, some of the biggest tech names have been the big leaders this month. Amazon, Netflix, Google, Microsoft, and most of the semiconductor names. Will the run continue? We will ask. Plus, more companies may be looking to add cash to their balance sheets as they prepare for a downturn. Could dividend cuts be on the table? And if so, who's most at risk? Stay with us.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's check in on the markets about half past the hour. We're 200 points or so off the lows for the Dow, but we're still down 495. That's a 2% decline. Uh, 716 was the low. The S&P 500 down 2.25% right now. The Nasdaq relatively okay, down 1.5%. Uh, here are the sectors that are leading the way to the downside. Energy top of the list as crude broke below $20 a barrel. The sector's down 6%. Materials down 4.5%. Financials down 4% today. And let's check on the price of oil. It's barely back above the $20 mark. It hit its lowest level intraday since February of 2002, fighting to get back into positive territory and struggling to do so. Now, many companies have suspended their share buybacks and even withdrawn guidance here, but only a few have halted their dividend payments. Could that be the next shoe to drop? Bob Bassani rejoins me with some of those answers. Bob? And uh, you've heard Procter & Gamble and you've heard Johnson & Johnson. They increased their dividend both by about 6%, but they're outliers, Kelly. You're not going to see a lot of that. First off, they have very modest dividends, around 2.5%. More prevalent is trends towards cutting and, in some cases, eliminating the, the, uh, the dividend that you've seen. So here's Johnson & Johnson, Procter & Gamble trading to the upside. They've had very good runs recently. But if you take a look at those canceling the dividend, suspending it, we should say, Carnival, Darden, Ford, Hilton, Nordstrom, Delta, Boeing. It's a fairly long list. It may get a little bit longer in the next couple of weeks here. Wall Street circulating lists of plenty of companies out there that have seen dramatic price drops, big increases in their dividend yields, and perhaps most importantly, big cash flow problems, because that's going to be the most important thing. So here's companies that have pretty high dividend uh, rates that have really rocketed in the last few weeks. Kohl's at nearly 15 percent. Schlumberger and Halliburton are both uh, 13 percent. Halliburton's probably 10 percent. Ethan Allen, Host Hotels, American Airlines. You'll notice something about this. They tend to cluster in a particular subsector. So you're seeing retailers, energy, hotel stocks, airline stocks. Those are the ones that are seeing the dividend yields rocket up the most and may be at the most risk of a dividend cut. So what does it mean? Does it mean the dividend payers should abandon the market? And I don't think so. Most of the time, there's estimates of 10 to 15 percent declines in total dividends paid this year. But they're largely concentrated in those particular sectors. And Kelly, I think that's a little bit of a good sign for the overall market. We're not seeing mass dividend cuts going on, but certain sectors. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, Back that's true. Bob, thanks. Bob Bassani. Well, from dividend cuts to tech, Amazon and Netflix hitting all-time highs and leading some traders to believe that tech offers the best promise for a way out of the slowdown that we're seeing. For more, I'm joined by Paul Meeks. He's lead portfolio manager of the Wireless Fund. Paul, it's good to see you. I haven't caught up with you in a little while, so tell me how you've been positioning throughout the sell-off. So what I've done is I've reshuffled the deck, and of course, as technology stocks did so well, in 19, you know, most technology stocks last year up 40 to 50 percent. If you are somebody like me that actually looks at valuations, I had to dip last year, particularly towards the end of the year, to the JV team. Yeah. You know, companies that uh, were not as nice as I wanted to, but they were relatively attractive valuations. Well, then you get into 2020 and you have the coronavirus and you have the big uh, draft downwards in stocks. And so what I've done is I've gotten out of the JV teams. Now I can uh, go into the varsity names because these are ones that are actually quality companies that now for the first time hmm. and sometimes not just months but years are reasonably valued. So I've done that. And then with surplus cash, I'm actually still building a pretty big cash position because I'm not one of the believers that this is going to be a snapback that's actually going to sustain itself. Oh, interesting. So you want cash to be able to buy maybe even cheaper, those varsity names, even cheaper valuations. Who are those names that, that right. you're uh, snapping up here? 
Now, one of the things that I'm interested in is there are a couple of companies that uh, were showing a lot of momentum pre-coronavirus, and it's going to be obvious to all in the post-coronavirus world that they are strong getting stronger. Netflix, Amazon. Recently, I beefed up my holdings in Activision as a gaming play, Akamai as an Internet speed and performance and security play, and some other names, because I want to make sure that they're the best names and also they fit the themes, because the themes are going to be different on the other side of this. Make sure that they are fitting the themes for remote workplace and some of the other major themes in technology. So you think remote workplace becomes a, a big theme coming out of this? I kind of wanted to ask you about that. I mean, a lot of people have piled on to the stay-at-home bandwagon trade. So I'm a little yeah. surprised to hear you in that as well. Is that because you think this is going to be a permanent shift or just because they got so cheap that you could comfortably buy them? Well, it's interesting. I've uh, separated my portfolio into some core names that I discussed, and I do have some trading names such as Zoom, which is a stock that I will exit as fast as I entered, because maybe over time it is a permanent beneficiary of the uh, live-at-home, work-at-home theme. But as of now, you know, it's still on the come. So I have some on the fringes. You know, I'm playing with the coronavirus successfully, some of those plays, but they're definitely not core names, and they will go, as I said before, as fast as they came in when the time is right. So Zoom's at 150. What's your, uh, what's your selling price? I think if Zoom gets back to uh, the mid-160s, which was its high of just a couple of weeks ago, I think I just, as I held my nose and bought it, I probably have to hold my nose. And even if it up, might be up 5 6 7% as it is today on that particular day, I just have to sell it uh, in good conscience until they show that they can actually monetize this huge uh, influx of subscribers. I'm not a believer long-term. Paul, I have to squeeze this in. Everybody's loved MasterCard and Visa. Many people have picked them up on the sell-off. Why did you sell them? You know, MasterCard and Visa do dominate the backbone of payment processing. But the problem is, in the post-coronavirus world, we're going to be going to bars, restaurants, doing face-to-face uh, -face transactions um, a lot less. And so I think in that space, you want to be in different names uh, in payment processing versus MasterCard and Visa, which actually got very expensive because they did so well mm -hmm. for so many years leading to the coronavirus. I just think they're bigger fish to fry than those two. Would you give us a name of who you think you should be in in the payment processing space? I think as we uh, morph over time, I don't do it uh, right now because I still think they could go lower. But PayPal and Square are probably more interesting to me than MasterCard and Visa. All right. Paul, always answer the questions candidly. We really appreciate it. That's my thing. Great to see, see you, you. Paul Weeks. Paul Meeks of the Wireless Fund, the lead portfolio manager. Coming up, getting the right supplies to the right places at the right time. A look at how one new partnership hopes to streamline that process. Plus, how did every single resident on wealthy Fisher Island and their staff get an antibody test when many doctors and patients across the country still can't get one? That story is straight ahead. Welcome back. Let's get to our big calls of the day. And Tesla is topping our list once again. Goldman initiating the company with a buy at an $864 price target, to be specific. Uh, Goldman says Tesla is well positioned to benefit from long-term secular growth in electric vehicles and that the company's early mover advantage should allow them to maintain good market share and gross margins. They say the company has also made improvements in cash flow. Tesla shares are at 727 today, up 2.5%. 
Next up is Canada Goose. DA Davidson upgrading them to a buy and raising the price target to 30 from 20. Canada Goose is at 21 today. Uh, they're saying that concerns about inventory overhang could recede as we move past the COVID crisis. They also like the setup for 2021 because this crisis will help next year's comps. They add Canada Goose has a solid balance sheet and liquidity position. Still, the shares are fractionally lower today by about 2%. And finally, Target upgraded by BMO to outperform in its price target hike to 125. Target, they say, is poised to emerge from this pandemic in a stronger position relative to peers whose closures may accelerate. And Target's trial of same-day services has also picked up, which BMO says will support a competitive advantage for the company and support higher margin sales. Target's still taking some profits today, down 2.5%. While the need for critical health care supplies to fight coronavirus has been great, so has been the willingness to help. But getting what's needed to the right place in a timely manner has been a challenge. And that's where the Frontline Impact Project comes in. Frank Holland is here now with more on that for us. Frank. Hey there, Kelly. You know, as part of that project, ConSnacks is donating 5 million ConBars and a million bucks to healthcare workers that are responding to the COVID-19 epidemic as part of that Frontline Impact Project. It also facilitates corporate donations of food, transportation, and lodging. It's all part of Project N95. That's a nonprofit that handles the logistics for hospitals to buy pieces of critical equipment. Organizers are using what they've learned sourcing PPE for hospitals to get donations for workers after hours. The biggest issue that we've seen has been the ability to understand who out in that ecosystem of suppliers actually has the equipment or the products that the hospitals can purchase. So the, the imbalance there really is that there are many people raising their hands saying that we can provide that, but there are very few who actually can deliver on that. Now we're creating a sister platform to enable them to also get healthy snacks or travel vouchers or lodging or any other needs that are donated by corporate organizations. And delivering donations has been a challenge. For example, Ralph Lauren partnering up with a nonprofit to deliver thousands of masks and gowns for donations on the East Coast. And then you have Las Vegas Sands handling the donation of two million masks to Nevada and New York all by itself. And then you have companies like Lowe's using medical supplier companies, Premier and Vizient, to deliver $10 million in PPE nationwide. Kelly? Markets everywhere. Uh, Robert, uh, Frank, thank you. <laughs> That's what happens when we put all the Franks together. Frank Holland with the details on that partnership for us. Uh, now to Robert Frank, who's going to tell us about the antibody testing kits among the many items in short supply across the country. We know that, but if you live on Fisher Island, Robert, suddenly you can get a test. Uh, what's going on? It's amazing, Kelly. Well, only 1% of Floridians have been able to get tested for the coronavirus. But 100% of the residents of Fisher Island off Miami have just gotten the antibody test. Now, the residents purchased 1,800 test kits for the island's 800 families, as well as for their housekeepers, their landscapers, and their workers. Now, everyone on the island will get the test, which gives them almost instant results on whether they have been exposed to the virus or have the immunity. Just to be clear, this is not the nasal swab test, which tells you whether you are infected. And of course, that test in more demand. But the testing has sparked a backlash in a state where there is still a lot of demand for tests and a lot of wait for testing right now. A spokeswoman for the island, which is only accessible by boat and has an average income of two and a half million dollars, said that since many of its residents are over 60, they are high risk and paid for the tests themselves at $17 each. She said they are also engaging in social distancing since the marina, the golf club, and the tennis courts are now closed. The University of Miami Health System, they're the ones that provided the tests. They said in a statement to me that, quote, we may have created the impression that certain communities would receive 
preferential treatment, and they say they are now revising that system for providing the test. But clearly, you know, as this crisis has exposed a lot of levels of inequality, this is just another example where people can point to it and say, see, the wealthy got different treatment from everyone else. Kelly. Right, because the cost is not an issue here. $17, almost everybody could get one. Should I call up the University of Miami and ask for one myself? I mean, there's there Miami's going to yeah, face more questions. I, I, exactly. Like, it's, it's who is the, the person with the access and why was it granted by the University of Miami? Well, that is the question. I, you know, I suspect somewhere in there there's a wealthy resident of Fisher Island that probably also serves on the board or is a big donor to the hospital. I don't know who that might be. The, the hospital system is saying, look, this is what they wanted. We provided it. Now, interesting, I found out that the test for the island came from the same company that the hospital got the test from for a broader Miami-Dade County government study. Again, they're saying they didn't, div they didn't divert these, but it is interesting they came from the same company, Kelly. Very lots uh, is about this. Robert, thanks. Appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you. Robert Frank. Coming up, why the Fed's emergence as a power player is posing new risks to its independence. Greg Ipp just wrote about it, and he'll join me live to talk about it next. Welcome back. The market is looking to the Fed for leadership during this crisis, and it has arguably emerged as the most powerful component of the government response. But as the central bank tanks on more power, it's also putting its independence at risk. Joining me now with more is Greg Ipp. He's the chief economics commentator at The Wall Street Journal. Greg, as always, got your finger right on, on the issue that everybody's kind of trying to wrap their heads around. I thought Dave Zervos, Zervos put it well yesterday when he said the Fed is getting more power, but it's trading its independence. Yeah, I think that's something that we really have to ask. Now, first of all, the Fed is doing what it has to do. We're in a kind of a crisis, sort of like a wartime situation, and the Fed is not going to be doing anybody any favors by sort of like waving the Federal Reserve Act in people's places and saying, no, we can't do that. And you got to give them kudos. They moved effectively. They moved rapidly. They made decisions that were quite defensible, that were not inflected by politics. But let's look a little bit ahead of here, uh, Kelly. They are going to be making decisions with these facilities where they'll be lending to municipalities, to big companies, to small companies, which corporate credit are they going to buy, which asset-backed securities are going to buy. This is a job that is supposed to be done by private markets. Who gets the capital? Who doesn't? We're going to have unelected technocrats at the Fed doing it. And here's the issue. Right now, that seems like a necessary thing to do. It's good that they're putting the money out there. But what about when the questions become a little bit more fine-grained? You're going to have companies going to their congressmen saying, hey, we'd like some of that credit. You're going to have municipalities doing the same thing. And there's going to be pressure on the Fed to be responding, not based on what the data and the financial markets suggest they need to do, but what on the politics suggests they do. And that's something we need to worry about. Right. And they've also changed their tune on this. And first, it looked like they were going to try to help the strong, not help the weak. Now they're buying junk bond ETFs. You know, the Fed's not supposed to be picking winners and losers, but in this case, it inevitably is, like you were just outlining. Is there an, could there have been a different way? Is there a way they need to massage or think about that communication now? I mean, even just contracting this stuff out to the likes of BlackRock as, as money managers is going to bring up these uh, conflicts of interest. Right. So uh, now the Fed will say that they are not picking individual firms over others. They're setting broad criteria for classes of borrowers. So they'll accept this investment, this credit rating, but not that credit rating. And that's all well and good. And by the way, that's more or less as it's basically been instructed to uh, by the law of Congress. So I don't really question their sincerity in this. But let's face facts is that in designing the 
facilities and which criteria you're going to use, that necessarily excludes some companies and some others. By deciding that fallen angels, companies that were investment grade up until March 22nd, would be um, eligible, that was essentially turning Ford into a winner, even if that wasn't the explicit design. And I think that, so there's that issue, yes. How, why do we want the Fed to do that? There was another way to do it. We could have just had Congress borrow the $3 trillion and make all those decisions. Right. The, the economics are exactly the same. I mean, at one level, I suppose it's a good sign that Congress trusts the Fed probably more than they trust the Trump administration to do this properly. But there's going to be some t tough questions ahead, Kelly. I mean, you know, Jay Powell said that on September 30th, we'll decide if these facilities are still needed. And I don't doubt that he will apply a very nonpartisan, economically informed view to that. But Steve Mnuchin might have a slightly different view, you know. He might have an eye on the election and mm -hmm. what he wants the shape of the markets to be in. Those are the kinds of conflicting incentives that the Fed is going to have to negotiate. Yeah. Again, we're just at the beginning, I, I think, of that. Uh, Greg, thanks so much. It's a great piece. And, and thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Kelly. Greg Ip with The Wall Street Journal. Uh, well, and as he just spoke, uh, The Wall Street Journal is reporting that the small business aid program is set to run out of money later today. So it's going to come down to the wire for whether there's enough funds out there for what's already been announced, not just on the Fed side. And we're just minutes away from the Fed releasing the Beige Book this afternoon. In today's down market, will that news top of the hour send stocks even lower? Stay tuned to find out. Plus, we'll have the CEO of Junior's Cheesecake. He's back. And he told us yesterday he got that small business loan. But he's not ready to bring back his workers just yet. That's stirring outrage from Washington to Main Street. We'll talk to him about the blowback he's getting and if what he's doing is allowed. This must-see interview coming up. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.